I trust that each of you have had a good day and are rejoicing in his goodness to the children of men. I appreciated the words uh, of the devotional this evening of God's thoughts being higher than our thoughts and his ways higher than our ways. That certainly uh, is a challenge to us and I thought was a good introduction for the message tonight. All right, uh, again, going to review a history of a song, or maybe I should say it's probably more a history of the author than it is the history of the song. Uh, But the one tonight is Christ is Risen, and that's found in Life Songs, page 286. Uh, This is one of the few hymns written by a Mennonite. It was written by Aaron Kolb. Aaron Kolb was born in Canada in the late 1800s. In his teens, he befriended a young black man by the name of Charles Jones, and he was uh, instrumental in leading him to Christ. And young Mr. Jones uh, eventually moved into the the Kolb home. And so Charles and Abram were both baptized at a meeting house in Berlin, Canada. Uh, They shared an upstairs bedroom, uh, lived with with, uh, Abram's parents, who was uh, Jacob Kolb, who was also a minister. And of course, they had a lot of farm work to do. They worked together on the farm. Uh, But that was not the only thing that kept... uh, Charles and Abram occupied. In the evenings, they read the scripture together, and they loved to sing. They spent a lot of time singing together. And early Easter morning on April 5th, 1986, Abram wrote uh, this lovely hymn, which still blesses many Christians around the world today. Abram later got married to a Mennonite girl from the States by the name of Phoebe Funk, He moved to Dayton, Ohio, where he taught school. And it was while he was teaching at this school that he had the privilege of teaching young Wilbur and Orville Wright. And if you remember, the Wright brothers uh, invented the first plane, and they came from a godly home. Uh, Milton Wright was their father, who was a bishop in the United Brethren the Brethren in Christ Church, United Brethren in Christ Church, which at that time were just as plain as what Mennonites were. Uh, their mother was Susan Kerner Wright, who was German, and uh, English, speaking English was very difficult for her. Orville and Wilbur were bright students, and they behaved themselves uh, well most of, the toy, most of the time. Anyway, you can expect from boys some occasional slip-ups, so I guess they were They were normal boys. And uh, Abram, as he taught them, learned to know the Wright family quite well, and he learned to enjoy these boys. And at one point when he traveled east uh, to a meeting, he he bought a small helicopter-like toy that he gave to Wilbur and Orville when he returned. And it was this gadget that they played with that finally developed from one flying gadget to the next, and eventually they uh, they tried their first airplane. So certainly Aaron Kolb never became famous like his young students eventually did, neither did Charles Jones. But the young men's vision and Abram's, Abram's song will continue to bless the church through the ages. And... Uh, May that it can serve, as we experience the resurrection power of Christ, it can serve to bring both the black, the white, the north, and the south back together. Because in Christ Jesus and the resurrection power of Christ, we can be reunited as one. So, okay, we asked the song leader to lead us in this song, Christ is Risen, Life Songs 286.
praise the Lord. Where would we be if it weren't for the resurrected Lord? Gives us victory over death, hell, and the grave. And the most interesting thing, he gives us victory over those besetting sins that seem to plague us from time to time. All right, continuing in the Sermon on the Mount tonight, I'll be looking at uh, Matthew 5, verses 20 to 48. I'm entitled the message, Kingdom People and Higher Righteousness. Verse uh, 20, Matthew 5, 20, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so we see here that in verse 20, higher righteousness is the challenge we face. And in verse 48, where it talks about being perfect is our goal. So higher righteousness is the challenge and perfection is the goal. But Jesus says that unless our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The word Greek there means to superabound. Hence the title, higher righteousness. And so our righteousness must exceed the law which the Pharisees so diligently lived by. Righteousness, we get a simple definition of the word righteousness is a right relationship with God. Uh, an inward, moral, spiritual coexistence with God. Well, what was the problem with the Pharisees' righteousness? The problem with the Pharisees' righteousness that they were they were more interested in details than in principles, and so they had a whole host of laws that and rules that got added to the Word of God. They were also more interested in actions rather than motives. They were very keenly aware of what people thought and what they looked like and were not too concerned about the inner lying motives. They were more interested in doing than being. They were more interested in works than they were in their relationship with God. And if there's too great of a gap in these things, in details versus principles, in actions versus motives, in doing versus being, if there's too great of a gap in these things, our witness to the world around us is going to become unconvincing. And so our righteousness must reach a rather high level of integrity. And we have a responsibility to move beyond where the scribes and the Pharisees were. If not, we notice what Jesus says. says, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. In no case. No exceptions. Not one solitary single specimen will have the privilege of entering in the kingdom of heaven if his righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Then in verses 21 through 48, we have uh, three different categories of sin that are mentioned. Sinful feelings, sinful words, sinful actions. We also have three areas of concern that are revealed to us. The physical life, mental attitudes, and spiritual being. And Jesus redefines six Old Testament laws, helps us to expand our understanding, to move beyond the understanding of where the Pharisees were. And in each of these, in each one of these laws that he redefines, he says, but I say unto you, and that alerts us to what I said last evening, is to the superiority of the words of Jesus Christ. The words of Christ are superior to the law, superior to the Old Testament. And so the New Testament is not a flat book. They're not on an equal plane. 
The words of Jesus, the New Testament, stands above the Old Testament. It supersedes the Old Testament. It expands upon it, it grows upon it, but it doesn't have the same level. So the superior, you see the superiority of Jesus' teaching over the law. All right, the first law that I'd like to look at this evening is thou shalt not kill in verses 21 to 26. This is a foundational law, a foundational law for any society to survive is the right to live. And so in our nation today, we have yet to see the consequences of abortion. There have been thousands and thousands of innocent lives who have been aborted, and we have yet to see the consequences of that. Innocents who have lost their right to live. It's a foundational law for any society to succeed. In verse 21, you have heard that it's been said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Jesus pushes back on this thing of thou shalt not murder. That's a good command, it's a good law. But he pushes it back. He pushes it even further. He pushes it to the point where murder is born. And where is murder born? It is born in, the, in an angry heart. And so he addresses the whole matter of, of, of anger. He deals with the intent. You see, it is the disposition of a human being that leads to murder. And so Christ pushes us back to take a look at this matter of anger. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something that we should excuse. I remember as a boy, and I had a difficult time relating to my grandpa, and he's gone on to reward, and we're going we're gonna to let him there. He had a lot of good things, but he struggled with his anger. And uh, I remember telling my mother, why is it that grandpa can get so angry? And when I do, I was, you see, I was made of the same stuff. But when I did, I got into trouble. Well, praise God for my parents. They dealt with my anger issues. But I was told, well, you need to accept grandpa. That's just the way he is. Well, what else was a mother going to tell her son about her, his grandpa? And so I don't hold that against her. But the point is, anger is not an excusable sin. And Jesus pushes back on it. That's where murder comes from. It comes from an angry heart. In 1 John 3, verse 15. 1 John 3, 15. Whoso hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. A person who hates his brother is potentially a murderer because within his heart lies that potential. The root of murder is found in the heart of an angry person. Now, anger is something that is progressive. It begins with thoughts, then words in verse 24, and then finally broken relationships no, the words in verse 22, broken relationships in verse 24, and finally, it leads to violence. God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry? That's a legitimate question for us to consider. Doest thou well to be angry? Do we anticipate that anger is going to lead us in the right direction? Ephesians 4, 26, it says, Be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Now, we recognize we're all made of human stuff, and there's times that uh, we get angry. But that very clearly implies that when we become angry, we sin, but we're to deal with it before the sun goes down. 
And so if we've expressed expressions of anger, we need to make it right with those we've been angry at and with God before the sunset, at the very least, before the sun rises the next morning. If it takes all night to work it out, do it. But don't pretend that it didn't happen because it's a serious sin. And it's a sin that's going to keep degenerating. It's going to keep moving in the wrong direction. If anger is not dealt with, we become destroyers and not builders. Now Jesus pushes it even a little further. He pushes it to our attitudes and our feelings about others. Not only is murder the uh, not only is, is anger the root cause of murder, but he takes it a little bit further. He takes it to our attitudes, to our feelings. Notice the latter part of verse 22. And whosoever, notice, and whosoever, there's a connection here. It's not a second sentence. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Reka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. The word reka means worthless, someone who is worthless. It is a prejudiced, it is a scornful, it is a belittling term. goes on to say about calling a person a fool, and it is very clearly a sin to call someone else a fool. I've said already there's more than one way to kill a man or to kill a person, and that is to slay their character. And there's more than one person who has been harmed, has had their character slayed by someone with a vicious tongue. Someone who was thought little of being scornful and belittling towards them. And so the root of murder is found in the hearts of those who find it easy to belittle others. If belittling others, making fun of others, we need to evaluate our heart. We need to evaluate our motives because if we don't, we're slowly but surely going to move towards the ultimate sin of murder. That's where it's rooted in. You see, the law required the sanctity of human life. But Jesus goes beyond that. The fulfillment of the law requires the sanctity of each individual human personality. Yes, we agree that we're not to kill anyone. That's wrong. But we need to have our respect for the personality of every human being that we meet. And that's a tremendous challenge. Because I know sometimes we get some depressions of people. But we need to be careful about our attitudes that we have about those impressions. So making fun of others is not living within the scope of higher righteousness. Verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Here we see very clearly that our attitude about others must be right before we can worship. You know, there's something about our inner attitude that affects our ability to worship. That's just the way we are. If if we zero in on a person's personality and we're sitting in the house of God and, and that person that we have a difficult time appreciating, all of a sudden our worship is completely distracted because we've got a wrong attitude about that person. And I suppose that has probably happened to all of us at some point or another. So we need to be careful about our attitudes. Jesus says, leave thy gift. What does that mean to leave thy gift? It doesn't mean we should leave our offering and and that's okay. The Pharisees probably thought, you know, they put enough of money in the offerings. uh, Everything else could be overlooked. But that's not what this verse means. This has to do with worship. Leave your gift of worship or put it behind you, or set it aside for future use. If you've wronged your brother, forget the worship. 
I believe that's the truth that we see here. If you've wronged your brother, forget the worship. Our worship is pointless. If we have offenses that we've not cleared up, and we've not taken care of, care of. If, if our relationships with one another are not reconciled through Jesus Christ, worthy, worship is merely a pretense. It is merely a show. Reconciliation is a much higher act of worship than it is to be able to come and offer our gift, our sacrifice to God. Verse 25, agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way. Now, who is this adversary? Agree with thine adversary quickly. What was interesting for me to notice in the Greek that this is referring to the devil. It's not referring to agreeing with your brother quickly. It says to agree with your adversary. Agree with the devil. Now why would we agree with the devil? The word agree means to admit. To admit. We must agree or admit that as long as there are uncleared offenses, we are under Satan's mastery. And so if those offenses aren't cleared up, we must agree with the devil that he's got under us under his manipulation. And that makes us, gives us a tremendous challenge, doesn't it? To make sure that I've done all I could to clear up the issues with my brother. Because if I don't, I am following just exactly what Satan wants me to. I'm his servant. Lest at any time, we notice the latter part of verse 25, lest at any time the, the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Now we all know that interpersonal relationships that are not resolved eventually lead to higher authority to help to resolve it. Maybe church authority, maybe the law of the land. So the challenge here is, is to settle the issues between the offender and the offended. Because court decrees cannot resolve the things that are biblically wrong. You can even have a church committee and sit together and decide, now this is what has to be done to resolve this issue. And it may make good sense, it may be logical, but unless the person's heart has been re re repents, those decisions mean nothing. Ideally, those persons need to voluntarily come to the place where they take care of those things that are biblically wrong. Verse 26, Verily I say unto you, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. If we fail to clear up offenses that we've been responsible for, there's nothing else that we can do to keep ourselves from going to hell. That's what that verse means. And that puts a tremendous responsibility upon us in our interpersonal relationships. Yes, this all has to do with thou shalt not kill. That's where attitudes and thoughts and feelings eventually lead. And Jesus was concerned about the root problem. All right, the second point I'd like to look at as we think of higher righteousness says thou shalt not commit adultery. And we see that in verses 27 to 30. The sacredness of marriage is at the heartbeat of a nation's prosperity. And we have yet to see what the consequences will be where there's breakdown in marriage. We're beginning to see them. We're beginning to see young children out of control. We're beginning to see children who are violent. But like the David of old said, is there not a cause? There is a reason our world is full of angry children. There is a reason these children get guns and they kill. That's because it goes down, it goes back 
to the breakdown of the marriage. And so adultery is a serious sin that strikes at the very heart of a society by breaking, God, breaking down God's very first institution, and that was the family. Verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so we clearly see here the sin of adultery begins with misplaced desires of the mind. When adultery is committed in a physical sense, it didn't happen suddenly. It didn't happen overnight. It happened because of misplaced desires prior to, the, to that physical event. And so God here is not only dealing with the sin in, in the bed, He is dealing with the sin in the head. Getting to the root cause. Adultery begins in the heart. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And a person who thinks about certain things long enough, sooner or later, is going to do them. That's just the way we're made. You can't get away from the fact, that fact. A man's mind always makes him a problem before his body does. You see, our body merely responds to what's going on in our mind. And we're very unique that way. The animal world can't do that, but we can. God has created us that way. And so that mind needs to be sanctified to have the right kind of responses, the right kind of behavior. We must learn to think right before we can live right. So we need the renewal of the mind. We need to be renewed in the spirit of the mind. We need transformation. We need new birth. Accumulating lustful thoughts in our minds is like storing garbage in our living rooms. The living quarters of our mind cannot be kept clean until we learn to live clean, until we learn to deal with those things that pollute our minds. And so the effects of pornography is devastating to the well-being of our society. And we cannot lightly excuse it. And that's where one of the difficulties that I have and the gullibility of us modern Mennonites and swallowing modern technology hook, line, and sinker. Because we fail to recognize the evil part of modern technology. I'm not saying we shouldn't use modern technology. We can't avoid it. But brothers and sisters, just look at our history. We have taken a stand against television. And I support that. But we have allowed the internet in the back door, which you can access things that you can't on television. Television is controlled by FCC. Now, I'll back off of my, my pet peeve there but I don't apologize for it. I think we're plenty gullible in our day and age. And one minister, Mennonite minister, told me recently, just a few weeks ago, it's involved in a lot of counseling. He said, because of the access, the easiness of accessing pornography through the internet, we are dealing with problems in our young men and our married men that we have never dealt with. We need a heart change. We need the transforming grace of God at work in our hearts and lives. Verse 29 and 30. Jesus suggests that some radical action be taken. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is proper for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. So this suggests that radical action be taken. It is better to spend a lifetime 
blind and crippled than it is to go to hell. Wouldn't you agree with that? None of us would want to think about being blind or crippled the rest of our life. But that's not going to bar you from getting into heaven. Right? This is talking about radical discipleship. We must eliminate the reason that caused our illicit thoughts and actions. If you're struggling with illicit thoughts and action, you've got to make a bypass. Proverbs 4.18, I think it is, or somewhere around there. We've got to make a bypass around the sin. We've got to take radical discipline. A person's eyes and hands have led to many a marital heartache. And if our eyes and hands are sanctified, then we don't need any radical discipleship, such as cutting them off. Now, I would be quick to say is don't... If you can't deal with your sinful thoughts and actions, don't be, don't be too quick to get your eyes plucked out or your hands cut off. But, but come to the Lord and let Him sanctify your heart. Let Him purge you of those sinful thoughts. But by all means, deal with it. Don't pretend it's nothing. Because it will eventually envelop and control your life. All right, the third point is the law of divorce. Verses 31 and 32. It hath been said, Whosoever Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Now one of the questions we may ask is, well, why did Moses permit the writing of divorcement? We find that answer in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verses 7 and 8. They said unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of a divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered or permitted you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And it's probably important for you to under, underline that last phrase, but from the beginning it was not so. Jesus did not build the doctrine on Moses' law, but he went beyond that. The reason Moses permitted divorce is to prevent the abuse of women, and we see that in Deuteronomy 24. They swapped and divorced their wives repeatedly to satisfy their own carnality when, when they got tired of their wives. Historians say that some men had their wives murdered. And so for Moses... To make this concession was the lesser of two evils. But it was not, it was not what God wanted. In the beginning, it was not so. In the beginning, it was not so. Now the Jews had a high regard for the law of marriage. We need to credit them for that. But nevertheless, they still dealt with their lustful thoughts. And so for kingdom people, the law of Moses is not the standard that we live by. Jesus takes us all the way back to the creation principle, to the original marriage, to the original man, the original woman, and anything other than that is adultery. Verse 32 Going back to Matthew 5, verse 32. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. Here is what's known as the exception clause. This uh, phrase here, except it be saving for the cause of fornication, has, has caused a lot of misinterpretations of the scripture. The word fornication here is referring to the unmarried. We, didn't, we need to remember that Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. Neither Luke nor Mark mentioned this. You see, a, a Jewish engagement 
was almost as serious as a marriage. And if fornication took place by one of the one or the other of those who were engaged, separation was expected. Divorcement was expected. It was not the dissolving of the marriage, it was the dissolving of the engagement. And there are those who interpret fornication and adultery as the same thing, and therefore they justify the remarriage of the innocent party. And I believe that is a correct, uh, that is an incorrect misinterpretation of Scripture. As a matter of fact, I have a problem with the way the New International Version says it in this verse. I don't like New International's, uh, New International Version's interpretation. We notice in the latter part of verse 32, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Whenever you have an E-T-H that follows a word, it means ongoing, continuing action. Committeth or continueth. And so remarriage, if the, if the living partner is still alive, remarriage is an ongoing act of adultery, an ongoing act of sin. All right, the fourth point I'd like to look at is the swearing of oaths in verses 33 to 37. The swearing of oaths is an attempt to use someone else's authority as our own. Uh, for example, in a court, uh, if you ever are asked to uh, testify in a court, which I had to one time, uh, they, they would ask you to lay your hand on the, lay your right hand on the Bible and raise your left hand towards heaven. And you're to say, I do solemnly swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Fortunately, we live in a land where they will accept, I affirm. That simply means that you affirm that you're going to be truthful. We don't need to use something else to somehow us, somehow give what we're going to say more authority. Since Christians always speak with truth, there is no need for an oath. There is no need for something else to embellish what we're going to say to try to convince those who are hearing us. An oath acknowledges. When we use an oath, we are acknowledging the existing of a lie. And therefore, the oath must go. We cannot give it any credibility. Higher righteousness seeks for inner honesty, inner integrity. We don't need, uh, we don't need others, other extra words to convince others of our integrity, of our honesty. Verses 34 and 35, But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, neither by the earth, for it is his footstool, Neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. It's very clear that our everyday speech needs to be reverent. We acknowledge as we live our everyday lives, as we live our Christian lives, we acknowledge the existence of God in all of life. We acknowledge the existence of God in, in creation. We acknowledge the existence of God in our interpersonal relationships. We acknowledge the, the existence of God in our speech as we communicate to others. And so such terms as my heavens and oh my stars is swearing because it, 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 it profanes the very one who lives in the heavens. These are terms, brothers and sisters, that need to be purged from our lives because they're disrespectful to God and they cause others to question our integrity because we're reaching out to get something else to embellish or to build up our truthfulness. The whole matter of the use of euphemisms, a milder substitute to swearing, and I don't necessarily like to use these words in the pulpit, but I do think sometimes it's important that young people and children understand what a euphemism is. 
And so such words as gee whiz, by golly, doggone, and on and on and on are euphemisms. They are a mild expression of swearing. And so when it comes to higher righteousness, we need to evaluate the integrity of our speech. Verse 37 says, tells us what to do. Let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. Now I realize that it's probably going to be difficult to communicate only that way. And so I think the emphasis here is that our speech needs to be honest. When we say yes, we mean yes. And when we say no, we say no. And let me just illustrate. Uh, the time I was called to court was during my 1W years in, in, uh, in Baltimore. And a man I worked uh, was suing the hospital because of an injury to his back. And uh, I worked with him, so I got called in as a, mater as a, as a witness. And the judge, or not the judge, but the lawyer, I guess it was, was asking me all these questions. And believe me, this, this little Pennsylvania Dutch boy was, was, was shaking in his boots, being in a big city courthouse. And, and when he'd ask me questions, I would say, well, I think so, or I don't think so. I said that several times, and all of a sudden, I heard this bang, bang, bang. And the judge said, young man, I want a yes or a no. And you know... That's the way our speech needs to be. I, I was just met a person the other day struggling with interpersonal relationships. He's struggling with a man who likes things in black and white. As a matter of fact, it was two ministers. One likes it in black and white. He likes a yes and a no. The other one is more of a gentleman. So when you ask him a question... He goes around the world with his answer and he comes back to base one and you're not sure if he said yes or no. We need to have our speech clear. And so I told him, I told this brother that speaks around the world, I said, you know, that's your problem. There's a huge difference between the two of you. And, well, anyway, I'm not going to go into that story anymore. But the point is, our language needs to be clear. Our speech needs to be clear. If we say something, we need to mean it. And the person who's received the message needs to understand it. If our no means no, and our yes means yes, there is no need for us to say, honest, that's the truth. How many times have you heard that? Sometimes we hear school children say that. And sometimes we hear adults say that. Verse 37b, chapter 5, verse 37b. Whosoever, whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. And it simply alerts us to a fact, to the fact that a person who is given to being verbose talks a lot, is going to find it a whole lot easier to sin. And I say that very carefully because I'm one of those. I have gotten into a lot of trouble with my mouth already because I like to talk. So people, brothers, sisters, those of you who enjoy talking, be careful. Be careful. All right. The fifth law we want to look at is resist not evil. And that's in verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The Old Testament law was given as a restraint so that the offender didn't suffer more than what was fair at the hands of the offended. You see, we all know what human nature is like. Somebody does something to us we overreact and we give back more than they deserve. And so this Old Testament law was designed to protect those who offended. But we come into the New Testament, into higher righteousness, 
And Jesus reverses this whole thing so that the offended voluntarily suffers more than the offender. And that can be a tremendous tool of witnessing. It can be a tremendous way of reaching hearts and lives of people. And so many times we fail to recognize. Jesus says here in verse 39, But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. You don't react to evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. But we say, that's not human. I mean, that's insane. Well, I agree. I agree. From a human perspective, it's absolutely insane for a carnal person. It's absolutely insane for someone who doesn't know the Lord. They can't do it. It's impossible. But Jesus is speaking to kingdom people. Jesus is talking to people who have the grace of God in their heart. And so for kingdom people, this response is enabled by Christ and makes it possible for us to respond that way, maybe even with a smile. Well, we always could bring up the argument, well, what about my personal rights? Well, brothers and sisters, we have none. Because at the foot of the cross, we surrender all. We surrender our will. We surrender our rights. We surrender our pride. We come before the Lord broken. And we allow Him to transform us and to change us. And when we surrender to Christ, the extraordinary responses, the unusual responses become reality. They become normal. It becomes normal to turn the other cheek, but it is not without the grace and the power of Christ. There are three ways of living. The devils, or the three levels of living, I'd like to say. The devils, human, and divine. And turning the other cheek is most certainly living on the level of divine. Are we willing to suffer wrongfully in order to help the offender to Christ? Are we willing to turn the other cheek and to accept that which doesn't rightfully belong to us? In, in Romans 12, verses 20 and 21, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. People and their souls are more important than our rights, than our material possessions. If we could have the perspective that our Lord Jesus have for the love of people, for the love of souls, what has happened to us is going to become insignificant because our focus is on that person. We're concerned about their welfare. And so we want to respond the way God wants us to respond. And so we might say, well, does... Does this even mean that I need to give up my material possessions if, if that would be the case? Well, yes, it does. Notice verses 40 and 42. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Verse 42, give to him that asketh thee and borrow, and from him that would borrow thee, turn thou not away. I remember an older brother from down in the uh, east of us, Lansdale area, had a barn fire. And during the barn fire, the firefighters were there, and at this old stone gable end collapsed, and two firefighters were instantly killed. This went to court. This brother had no insurance. And he didn't know what to do. The lawsuit was pretty intense. And so he told his sons what he's going to do. 
His sons agreed. He went to the courthouse the day of the trial. The property was paid for, and he had the deed to the property. And when and he presented it to the judge at somewhere in the process of the time, he presented it to the judge and he says, I can't pay this this uh, this fine. Here is the deed to the property. I'll have it legally signed over to you. The judge was taken aback. There was silence in the courtroom. And finally the judge brought his gavel down and said, case dismissed. Brothers and sisters, God honors those who honor him. Higher righteousness is when we do more than what is required or expected of us. All right, the sixth law I'd like to look at is the law of love. In verses uh, 43 to 47. Verse 43, you have heard that it's been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. This is the highest and noblest of all laws. As a matter of fact, the law of non-resistance is built on this law. But even Jesus expands on this Old Testament law. In verse 44, he says, But I say unto you, the word but alerts us to the fact that what Jesus says supersedes the Old Testament law. True Christian love goes beyond loving his neighbor. How can we love our enemies? You know, filial love is spontaneous. If someone in the family has a loving expression towards us, it's spontaneous to respond with love. It's just the way we're made. We enjoy those kinds of of relationships. But agape love is not a spontaneous love. Agape love, God love, is an act of the will. Because God chose to love us while we were yet sinners. There is nothing we deserved or earned to receive God's love. God of his will, of his agape love, decided to love us. And it is the same root word, it is the same Greek word, the same agape love that requires the exercise of our will. It's not going to come spontaneously, but it can be experienced if we have the love of God in our hearts. If we love our enemies, we're going to need God's love in our hearts. And if we make up our minds that we will love them, it's certainly going to be a whole lot easier. So people may be enemies to us, but if we have the love of God in our hearts, Remember, we are not enemies to them. A quote by Abraham Lincoln, I destroy my enemies when I make them my friends. That's the challenge that you and I have. If there are those people in your lives that you view as enemies. It says here we're to bless them. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Bless means to speak kindly. Do good means to serve them. To pray means to talk to God about them. And oh, isn't it interesting? When we have those interpersonal tests, if we decide to pray for them, how our attitude towards them changes. I'm sure it has happened to you. It has happened to me. We need to pray for them. The type of Christianity that is ready to ostracize or to cut off someone else because they have been ill-treated is shallow indeed. It is not rooted in the grace of Christ. It is rooted in self. We have three reasons here why true Christianity loves his enemies. First of all, it is a mark of maturity that they may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Children, mature children, if you please. Mature children of the Father 
are going to respond with love towards the enemy. The other reason is, is because it's godlike. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. God does not differentiate the blessings of life between the wicked and the evil. He lets it rain on the unjust, and he lets it rain on the just. And so God makes no differentiation. And so we need to have those same godlike attitudes. And thirdly, it's a testimony. Our life's testimony needs to go beyond that which is normal and that which is ex- expected. Verses 46 and 47, If ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? If ye salute your brethren, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans the same? Anybody, anybody can do this. But when our love super exceeds what is acceptable human response, that is God-like love at work. Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. We cannot expect the reward for Christians if our standards do not rise any higher than what is normal human response. In conclusion, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. The standard of righteousness is not our friends. It's not our peers. It is not our church group but it is our heavenly Father. We make the common mistake of comparing ourselves among ourselves. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we just may follow each other into hell. We need to make our heavenly Father the standard. We need to make Him the Lord of our lives. We need to surrender to His will. In our human sphere, we are to be perfect, even as God is perfect in the divine sphere. We recognize that we can never reach the level of perfection of our Heavenly Father in the divine sphere. However, we can have the divine operating in our hearts on the human sphere, on the human level. And so by His grace alone, we can achieve higher righteousness, a perfection that is not rooted in human effort. Because if we try to be perfect in our own human effort, we fail. And so I trust tonight as we've looked at these six laws and how Jesus expanded them for kingdom people, that we're ready and willing to be honest with ourselves. And if you're here tonight and you recognize that you've sinned, you recognize you've failed, you recognize there's some things to repent of and to rebuild, we give you the opportunity to respond to the loving call of Christ to receive his power to live a life of higher righteousness. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we have looked into your word, we realize that these matters are rather weighty. We realize that in so many areas we have come so far short. And we just pray, dear Father, that you would forgive us. We pray, dear Father, if there's anyone here tonight that needs to make a further step or commitment of repentance, of reconciliation, of whatever it may be, we pray, Lord, that you might help them to have the courage to allow the grace of the Lord Jesus to stand up for you. If there's someone here that has never experienced this grace in their heart, we pray, Lord, that you might help them to receive it by faith. And so we give this invitation, we surrender to you. You know the hearts of these people, and may you move and work among them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.